Thank you, Drew. If you would, turn in your Bible to Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. Now, I have to be honest with you this morning. I'm tempted to... What did I just say? Okay. Uh, Lamentations chapter 4. But I'm tempted to just scrap this sermon entirely and preach from Ephesians chapter 4. Because when I walked in here this morning... I looked at my wife's feet and six of my books she had stolen uh, out of my office. And you'll remember Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, let the thief no longer steal. Sarah just takes a hyper-literal view of the two shall become one flesh, conflating that with my library. It's all okay. It's wonderful to be here with you all this morning. Last week, we looked at what it is to have a pure zeal rightly formed and reckoned with the reality that that happens in our own individual lives, uh, often under difficult providences that God gives us. And we saw in the life of Paul at the conclusion of last week that in all of the shipwrecks and the difficulty that he had faced, he had come to the conclusion that his chief aim was to know Christ in his fullness. And so that is a pure zeal rightly formed. Well, today we turn to chapter 4 in Lamentations. And I know that I've mentioned this before. uh, And I think that it's a plain argument to make that beyond Genesis chapter 3, in a fallen world... There really is no triumphant day. There's no day where we don't wrestle with our sin beyond Genesis chapter 3. Humanity's always beset with sin. But I do think that we can overread the implication of that text and say, well, that just means that everything's always awful. And the reality is, in the life of the church, in the life of the nation, and in our own individual lives, we know that there are seasons where we are nearer to the Lord and we're walking closely with Him. And then we know that there are times in our lives where we drift and we aren't under the Word of God and we aren't well spiritually. There are moments that we can look back to, that's what I'm pointing at, and we can rejoice in times of fruitful spiritual experience. And then there are times that we walk away from the Word of God and we are a good case study in lament. And really, that's the whole theme of what we will look at today. Jeremiah is looking back to days when the nation had walked with the Lord And then he pauses and looks at the current reality of how the life of the nation looks in that moment, having walked away from the Word of God. And what he concludes is this in these first 11 verses. Everything and everyone has been affected. No one has been treated as innocent No one has been left out of the scorching judgment of Almighty God. The overriding message, if we're not careful, we could could come to these first 11 verses and as we read through them, I do think that there's a right visceral response to these words. There is a right kind of, whoa, 
as you read through these first 11 verses and the impact of the weight of what has happened, what has befallen the nation of Israel. If we're not careful, what we will think is, God, you are very heavy-handed. But really, I think what Jeremiah wants us to understand, and the truth of this passage, and its overriding message is this, God has dealt justly with His people. There is no question, after reading these first 11 verses, that God, when He says that He is going to make a name for Himself upon the earth, at any time His people sin against Him, He will vindicate His name. And God will not spare His people any cost or any consequence. It's a weighty reality, I think, even in our lives today. So with that in mind, would you do honor the Word of God by standing as we read together these first 11 verses. There's no way to read these words just kind of mumbling through them, is there? We're not getting them if we read them that way. So here Jeremiah laments how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious stones of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. That her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies were more ruddy than coral, their beauty of the, their form like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot, they are not recognized in the streets, their skin has shriveled on their bones, it has become as dry wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women, women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has given full vent to His wrath. He poured out His hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Friends, these are God's Word to you and I today. Arresting, startling. They belong to us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into Your presence this morning acknowledging the weight of our own sin, the weight of our own foolishness, and the weight of the penalty of walking away from Your Word. And Father, we're so thankful this morning for the blood of Christ applied to each one of our accounts. And we can stand before You knowing that we are counted as righteous in Your sight because of His active 
obedience. Father, we are thankful to know that we belong to You. But Father, we also know that we have much yet to repent of. Would You write these verses on all of our hearts that we would live before You in such a way that would bring glory to Your name. And it is in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. What I want to deal with today really are just two simple categories of this text. The first is the simple meaning of the text. And then the application in light of this text. What do you and I as New Testament believers do with this? So first, the the meaning of the text. And I believe that what we are intended to understand from from Lamentations chapter 4, these first 11 verses, is really the extent of the judgment of God knows no bounds. That it is top to bottom, through and through. All of society has reaped the due punishment of the the wrath of God for having left the Word of God. And, And he begins in these first two verses by dealing with the people of God. Jeremiah here is speaking metaphorically. When he talks about the gold growing dim, he's not talking about the temple, he's not talking about the symbols, uh, the city rather, he's not talking about the walls, he's referencing here the people inside the city. Let's look at these first two verses. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street, the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Gold is a familiar symbol to represent something precious. Stones always had a connotation in this context of being connected to the sacred, the the work of those priests in the temple. And if you take these two expressions, the gold and the precious stones, and you put them together, what it expresses is a reality about the people of God that they are precious and sacred in the sight of God. I was watching a documentary on the crown jewels uh, recently, probably two or three weeks ago, and the narrator of this particular documentary as it began just abruptly begins by saying these are symbols of monarchy and they are meant to be worn and seen as symbols of monarchy. Friends, the reality of what is being pressed upon us in these verses is that we who belong to the living God, the one God, the true triune God of all of the universe, are worth our weight in gold as we walk before Him according to His Word. I think that we have so undersold our inheritance as saints of the living God. We were talking this morning in our Sunday school class about the reality of being transferred, or translated rather, into the kingdom of God. And that idea that being transferred means merely to take an individual from one place and put him in another. But translated literally means that where we are in this present moment, we have been translated into being citizens of the kingdom of God. We are precious people this morning. We may be few and we may not look like much, but because we belong to Him and we have been purchased by the blood of Christ, 
We are worth our weight in gold. And when we forget this reality and we whore after the world, the consequences are not slim. We need to remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His His marvelous light. Do you see the connection of our identity in that one verse? That we are a nation. Holy unto the Lord. And what is our right action? Is it to leave the Word of God? Is it to think little of the Word of God? No, it is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. The joy of being one of the people of God in the kingdom of God is that we proclaim the message of God. And now, rather, we see the the pivoting of this reality in every generation, at every turn. The sons of God are precious, worth their weight in gold. But now, in light of the people of God having left the Word of God, they are scattered and viewed as nothing. Scattered at the head of every street, Jeremiah says. Brought down, ultimately, is the picture, by God Himself because of their sin and scattered among what is common. They are like earthen pots smashed to pieces in the street, left as trash. They have lost all of their esteem. They have lost all of their honor and are now treated with contempt. Friends, I don't have time this morning. But if you wonder why there's an entire block of politicians that can't figure out simply the difference between a boy and a girl this morning, if you wonder why we applaud abortion as a nation in so many different spheres, and this is even inside the church, if you wonder why we have morally fallen in our nation, I would, I would, I would contend with you if you studied out the reality of the past 200 years of human existence is that we have heaped up for ourselves many pastors and teachers who have taught us not to live under the Word of God, but to leave the Word of God. And it's no wonder then that the people of God fall. In in verses 3 and 4, moving on, we see the reality that the wrath of God has impacted even the children. The children here are not spared. They've been treated here in in this expression of Jeremiah. He can't get the image out of his head. As worse than animals. Even the jackals, he says, offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of nursing infants stick to the roof of their mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. The the ostrich in this immediate proximate context uh, was known as an animal for its cruelty. Uh, The Arabs, even to this day, call the ostrich the ungodly bird. If you'll remember these words in the book of Job 39, verses 14 through 16, we have a biblical illustration of that. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting at foot, a foot may crush them. 
and that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. The ostrich was an animal that didn't take care and doesn't take meticulous care of its young. And this is an awful picture that Jeremiah, again, can't remove from his head. Mothers had, had been starved to the point that they no longer could even physically feed their children. And they seemed as though they were indifferent. Jeremiah again here is looking and and remembering in his mind's eye as as the the besiegement of Jerusalem happened and, and the reality that there were children begging for food and there was no food to be given to those children. The children had suffered, and we do, now I'm not getting into the theological implications, and we do know that, that, that the fall has implications, and our children are born as wretched sinners, right? But we tend to think about our children as being innocent, as not having committed volitional acts of rebellion towards uh, the living God. Now, now again, we, we know ultimately that's not true. I think it's Vody Bauckham who says that, that when we look at our children, that's not a cute little baby. That's a viper in a diaper. <laughs> yep. And that's true in many ways. But, but, but we do understand that here, the children didn't have a volitional choice in leaving the, the Word of God. This was the, the rulers and, and, and their parents and the nation who had ultimately drifted, and yet the children were the ones who had to bear the consequence uh, because of the leaving of the Word of God. And then we see in verses 5 and 6 the reality of adults. No, not only children, but also adults. Those who had eaten delicacies and who were clothed in the most lavish of dress were now destitute and in the streets. Those who were once feasted on delicacies perish in the street. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and and no hands were wrung for her. The prophet says, the children, the nation, the adults, everyone has been impacted by the wrath of God, by the chastening of the people of God. And then he comes and he he asks a question, what can compare to this punishment? The punishment that the people of God have received for the leaving of the Word of God is not light. The chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. Now, Sodom is the proverbial illustration of the wickedness of men and the wrath of God. Those who refuse to live according to the commands of God will receive the wrath of God. And we find the reality of this full weight of God's venting of His wrath against Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. You'll remember these words. that The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and, when she became, and then she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. 
And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. God's red hot wrath. And here we see it's poured out not only on Sodom and Gomorrah, the reality of Jeremiah and the lament of Jeremiah is that it's also poured out on the people of God. Justly, proportionate, and holy, but wrath no less. And here we have the stunning reality that God, of course, deals with our sins. Friends, there's a type of, of theology that says, and, and, and this is one of my early conversations with an individual in our church probably eight years ago. And he said, Jay, you continually preach in such a way that would leave me to believe that God is angry at my sin. Yes. I don't see it that way. I just, I just when, when, when I screw up, I hop up in God's lap and like a good father, He just kind of tells me to get over it. What a blasphemous understanding of sin and the wrath of God. Because the reality is, and we'll get to this more later, the cross of Christ makes no sense without a God who is angry at sin continually. The question has to be this morning, how in the world was this chastisement worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, we're talking about a place that was scorched off the face of the earth. Smoke. You know, there's a lot of modern interpretations about homosexuality in that passage. God wasn't angry at their homosexuality. He was angry that they weren't being monogamous in their homosexuality. I don't know what they have to drink to get to that hermeneutic, but it's probably some strong stuff. Because that is an absolutely foolish usage of the text. It is clear. I don't even think that you have to be indwelt by the Spirit of God to see the reality of the profaning of the natural order in these sins. And friends, in case I'm not, I don't want to be misunderstood, God offers grace to those who would repent and turn from those sins. But here we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, His wiping an entire community off the face of the earth. And He was right and just to do that. And if you struggle with that, can I just encourage you lovingly that the struggle isn't with what God has done, it's with what your heart perceives. But here we have the wrath of God poured out on the people of God. And, and, and the question again, how is this worse than Sodom? And the answer comes in verse 6 that one was overthrown in a moment, that is Sodom and Gomorrah, and the other was, was overthrown over days and the implication lasted for generations. The starving of, uh, of the community, the, the, the exiling of the people of God, the, the, the judgment against Jerusalem and against Israel had a longer lasting consequence. And friends, here's the reality. Again, it was God who inflicted punishment in both cases. And here Matthew Henry reminds us, Sodom was never uh, given the means of grace that Jerusalem had. 
Oh, why was the punishment more severe for the people of God? Because they had the oracles of God. They had the prophets of God. They had the promises of God. And they turned and in the face of God said, no thanks, we would prefer to take the word of the world over the word of the living God. They had ignored the reality of what God had called them to do. And friends, make make no mistake, sin as sin is always insidious to God. Sin is all damning before a holy God. But there is no doubt that the offense of God's people before His throne is more insidious because we have more truth. I'm so sick and tired of preaching that would lead us to believe that once we pray a meager prayer, we don't need to worry about our own growth and holiness. No, friends, if you've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you have more of a reason to be concerned with the imperatives of the Word of God. So while Sodom was overthrown in a moment, Jerusalem died a slow, lingering death. And that was just. And part of what is being given here, no hands were wrung. There was no grieving over Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because their judgment came as an executioner lays an axe to cut off somebody's head. In a moment, the execution took place and there was no one around in that community to lament. There, there was no one who, who, who grieved over Sodom and Gomorrah. But here God has left a faithful remnant in Jeremiah who has, is committed to stay there in Jerusalem and he is broken over the reality that the people of God had left the Word of God and they had reaped their just penalty. So not only... The people of God, not only the children, not only are the adults reaping judgment, but here also in verses 7 and 8, the nobles, her princes, were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. Their beauty of their form was like sapphire. There was dignity and purity and holiness and beauty among the leaders of the people. Friends, I lament the reality of a day when there were men in our nation in the 20s, like B.B. Warfield, who, when the president of the nation had a question about how we should respond to, to different circumstances, they called him. Because not only was he mighty as a theologian, but he also understood the political systems or, or Abraham Kuyper, or, and, and the list could go on and on. Jonathan Edwards, the, the, the reality that there are these men who stand as giants throughout the history of the church. Not that we would idolize them, but that we would be served by them. And their lives were distinct And today, we have our beloved brothers in skinny jeans drinking a latte and trying to make a cute catchphrase over a text. We have reason to lament. Compare that with verse 8. 
And now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bodies. It has become as dry wood. They no longer, here's, here's the picture. They, they, they no longer resemble nobility, but rather common people. Friends, we live in a day and age when what is applauded is that you as a Christian, and, and there's, here's the problem with all heresy and with all poor teaching of the Bible, there's always truth in it. So in our day, a modern preacher likes to emphasize the reality that we're all sinners. Every human being is born wretched and depraved. Now they'll go on to miss interpret that later that's not my point but but and they they'll use that in a way that we should all just live in our own sin and 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 the way that we win the world is by being like the world the way that we become a witness in the world is to just reckon with the fact that we're sinners and seek to live parallel lives and friends there are some ways that i think that is true And we don't want to be the stuffy kind of people that it's all about just externals. It's not what I'm arguing. But I am going to argue this. That the people of God have often lost their place of prominence when we no longer desire to be distinct by our submitting our lives completely under the Word of God. We are noble people distinct and called out in proportion to how much we submit to the oracles of God for the glory of God. And yes, you know what? When we do that, the world is going to mock us. We're probably going to lose opportunities for employment. There are going to be penalties, but I promise you that the the glory of being a distinct people unto God, proclaiming His excellencies, is far better than whatever temporary problem you face. Mighty here have fallen. I think the reality is, for generations... The implication in the life of Jerusalem and in Israel was that these people would probably forget their heritage. And I think the same is true in our day. Uh, We have forgotten as young people the Christian heritage that we have. Uh, We forget why services were ordered in certain fashions. And I run into this all the time just in casual conversations with people in our body. I'm not angry about it. But we're uninformed about how the church used to gather, understanding that the audience was not in the pew, the audience is on the throne. Not only the mothers, not only or not only the children, not only the adults, not only the people, but also here the mothers in verses nine and ten also have been impacted. And I think this is the most sobering reality. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. He's talking about children there. Who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Now we've already seen the the problem and plight of the mothers just in the natural form of a besiegement that they weren't able to feed their children, but now we reach a more horrifying depth. And this has been dealt with in the latter part of 
of, of chapter 2 as well, but here we find women who were known for their great compassion and their caregiving and their devotion to their children, and now they are devouring those same infants. <laughs> and I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it, it, it bears repeating. Uh, we're arrogant and foolish if we come today and think that that's not where we are as a society. You see, the problem is these mothers had been put in a situation where their families had been besieged by the world, and they thought the only way to remedy the problem was to slaughter their children. I won't go into the depths of it, and Sandra Frankie probably knows more about this and discipline and her leading of the center, but we live in a day and age where, and maybe this, this mode of abortion is outdated, but where a saline solution is injected into a woman to literally kill the child. And we think we've risen above this text. I would just tell you with a lamenting heart that our families are so besieged in our own generation that children are given over to the consequence and the world seemingly runs our homes in so many ways. Friends, it's not a small thing, I, I don't believe, to applaud. And I just I will copy out this by saying I believe that women can can work in vocational fields and that doesn't dishonor the Lord. But I do believe that being a mother is a precious thing. That caring for your children, ladies, is not small. Remember, Sarah and I got married very young. And um, I, I was talking to Sarah last night, making sure that she remembers this so that we didn't get into a disagreement about it later. And I remember early on in our dating uh, relationship, I asked Sarah, what do you want to do uh, when you get older? And her response is, I want to be a wife and a mom. And I, did, I just sat there on my side of the truck and just, mm. inside I was like, yes, Fantastic. Because I was raised with grandparents who my great-grandmother and my, both of my grandmothers loved and cherished their families and served them. But I did see a shift and a change in later generations. And, and, and I just remember as Sarah and I, and I'm not, I'm not propping us up this morning, but I just remember when Sarah and I being young in our early 20s and, and, and women would ask my wife, what, what are you going to do? Um, you know, as a married couple, what, 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 are, what is your life going to be about? And Sarah would say, well, I just really want to be a mom. And, and I really want to be a wife. And there was often, not always, but often, this is approaching 20 years ago, the response to that was not a, oh, great. It was, oh, you poor thing. No, oh, you're wasting your life. Friends, I just would encourage you that it's not a waste of a life for mothers to pour into their children to give themselves over to that cause. Our children are an, a precious inheritance of the Lord. And there should be nothing that we withhold from them in growing in the Lord. And, and, and so then we come to this question. So we see that mothers, nobles, children, adults, the entire nation had been impacted by the wrath of God in eviscerating ways. So why had all of this happened? Look at verse 11. The Lord gave full vent to His wrath. He poured out His hot anger. 
and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundation. Again, beloved, many people want to ignore the wrath of God. There are even people who will evangelize in this way, and we may have talked about this before, but they will say that, friend, you need to receive Jesus... So that you, when, you, when you die, you go to heaven. Those are all good, encouraging things. But then they'll say something to the effect of, because the only place where God doesn't exist is in hell. I promise you on the authority of the Word of God that hell does not diminish the omnipresence of the triune God. God is present in hell, but what is His presence there? And the answer to that question, and this is why I don't believe in the annihilation kind of view that that when you die, you go to hell and then you're just incinerated and, and, and your existence is done. You are created as an eternal being and you go to an eternal place and there is an eternal God giving full vent of His wrath upon your sin forever. He is present there. And the wrath of God is present there. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And friends, you know, the, the whole of... Here's why. We, we don't want to deal with that because it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's not socially polite and politically correct to do that. And so our churches, well, that's gonna, that may offend somebody. That may make them feel bad. I hope it makes you feel awful to the point that you repent and believe. Yes. But can I tell you, I don't think that those are really the reasons that we have forgotten the wrath of God. I believe the reason we have left the doctrine of the wrath of God is because genuinely we have left the doctrine of the atonement. And we've left the doctrine of the atonement because we have left the doctrine about the cross of Christ being supreme in all of human history. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, it is only because I understand the doctrine of wrath that I can understand the doctrine of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because His cross makes no sense without the wrath of God being poured out upon Him. The reason that the nation had suffered because of all of these things was because God was judging them for having left His Word. He was doing it swiftly, and He was doing it justly, and He was doing it proportionately. It's interesting here, the very end, I think we could just gloss over this and not find the weight and the significance, and quite frankly, something that should cause all of us to tremble. Because here to the people of his own pasture, Jeremiah laments, and he points out this truth at the end of verse 11, he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. I don't know how familiar any of you are with how Lee could probably kill as a fireman, could probably help us out. Uh, But a fire generally consumes the structure and the roof and the contents of a home. But here we are given a picture that, well, and we've been given the picture from verse 1 all the way through to the end of verse 11, that, that the people and the mothers and the children and the adults and the nobles, everything has been consumed. God has set a fire that's not just consuming lightly, but has burned even the foundations of this people. And the living God who is holy can do the very same thing 
God shot straight to the foundations of an entire society. And why? Because it was a society who had left the words of God. And what she experienced because of leaving the Word was the awfulness and the awesomeness of God's wrath. I'm afraid that we'll come to these passages as moderns and we'll go, is that fair? Is it fair for God to pour out His vengeance upon people in this way? And I think the only then right way, the the answer is yes, but the only right way to come to this passage, to be impacted by it, is not to question God, but it's to cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me into life everlasting. According to what? According to His Word. And the thing that our nation needs more than anything else is not a new system of evangelism. It's not a new fad inside of our church culture. It's not something to gin up an audience inside of church buildings for religious services. It is the Word of God being proclaimed by the people of God to the glory of God in the splendor of the holiness of God. And that only happens by the power of the Spirit of God. So then we come to apply this text, and let's boogie through this. I, got, I have four applications here of this text. One, we should never presume on the goodness of God. Friends, we have been blessed as a nation in the past. We have been given spiritual vitality in many ways, and that doesn't mean we're perfect. I was talking to some friends the other yesterday about revival and, and the reality that often the church doesn't live in light of its Christian heritage in, in the understanding that God did the work of revival in ages past. And God can still do that work today. But here's the problem. We seem to think that we can presume upon the past successes and blessings of God and just come in and skate through our Christian life. But do you know that in the moving of God, He always uses means to proclaim His message. And and, and so what we must be committed to is giving all of our lives over to the work of gospel ministry for the glory of God. Every person that you work with, that you go to school with, that you interact with should be receiving the gospel not from your pastor, but from you. But rather, we live in a day where we want revival without cost. We want full congregations without holiness. We want flourishing families while we scoff at the world. My friends, think of what what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whatever, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you and you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. 
Friends, the reality of what Paul is calling us to there is that we not rest on past successes, but that we press on knowing that to do so we must be people living in the Word of God and proclaiming it to our own generation. So one, we must never presume on the goodness of God. I think that's what had happened in the nation of Israel. They had just presumed we're the people of God. He's always going to take care of us. Not if we leave the Word of God. Secondly, we must fear worldly success as the main aim of our life. Seeking to do all things to the glory of God is not to be ashamed of. That we, we should not be ashamed to go into the marketplace. In fact, the Bible tells us, go into our particular vocations and do all things unto the glory of God. Work as unto the Lord, not as unto man. And often, as we do that, as we honor the Lord in our work life, the natural outcome will be success where the Lord has us. God will bless our effort. But when we make the fleeting things of this life our aim, when we seek to build our own kingdom here, when we seek success as the chief aim of our life, there is a great risk in that. And you know what it is? God may very well give you over to the success that you desire. And you'll serve the success and not Him. You'll think that you're, you're doing well because you've gotten what you've wanted. You've accomplished what you've wanted. And again, I'm not against accomplishments in the Bible, I don't think is either, when they are done unto the Lord. But friends, as Christians, we live our lives not for the success that we experience, but for the glory of the Lord. Look at these people and what had happened to them. They had made their aim to please the world, to be successful in the eyes of the world. And what had happened is their lives had crumbled. Friends, success is a cheap lie that says your your future will be secure when you arrive at the next step. But we sang this morning, didn't we? The reality, Brian, that our future in Christ is clear. Come failure, famine, or abundance. If we are in Christ, the Bible makes our end explicitly clear. So we don't aim for success. We aim for the glory of God in all that we do. And friends, it's interesting, I think, in so many churches that, that, that what, is, what is the aim of so many movements, and I, I've fear that some of this comes from the reality of an overreaction to liberalism is that we would have churches that would overcome and be victorious in the culture wars. And what happens often in those particular movements is that holiness and Christ-likeness becomes a secondary issue. That we can win the argument in our day. That we can have the right theology. That we can have the right answers. And God will be pleased with us. But friends, can I tell you where Christ-likeness is not the aim, when holiness and righteous conduct are not the aim, individuals, families, churches, and nations will eventually come to ruin. Because God will vindicate His name. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. Do you know why this man meditates on the law? Because it is the Lord's. 
And his joy is not in winning an argument in the public sphere. His joy is in knowing the one true triune God. When God's people sin, I promise you the nation suffers spiritual, morally, economically, political chaos always, always ultimately follows when the people of the Lord leave His law. The answer then is not to focus on those things, but rather to run to the Lord in repentance. So we see the reality that we are called then to reckon with this final now, excuse me, that, that with this final reality, and that is that when we are given much, much is required of us. Friends, the, 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 the verse that has just captured my attention as I read through this this week, for the chastisement of the daughter of the people, of my people, has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Verse 6 is just inscribed on to my heart. Because in light of this verse, do you know what that means? We're understanding that these Old Testament saints were judged mightily because they had been given the prophets, because they had the oracles of God, because they had the things of God, and they left them. We have the blood of the Lamb applied to us. Who will be more accountable than we? Let that sink in. We have been purchased with a price. We have been raised as heirs with Christ. How much more does He require in terms of holiness and obedience and devotion and faithfulness and single-mindedness and perseverance and, and kindness and the like of those who belong to Him through the payment of the ransom price of the blood of His only Son? Richard Sibbs totally messed up my conclusion this morning. If you don't have the refreshment of the soul, uh, it's a devotion that was just put out. Uh, just selected writings of Richard Sibbs. You get a free one today. He begins this devotional with 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? And he asks this question, why does God chiefly afflict His people more than others? And he gives two reasons. Because they are His own family and are called by His name. Now the disorders of the family lead to the disgrace of the leader of it. The sins of the church touch God more nearly than others and therefore judgments must begin at the sanctuary first, quoting Ezekiel chapter 5. Beloved, the Gospel suffers much because of the, the sins of those who profess to be followers of it. What, says the world? These be your professors? Look at the way they live. What little conscience they have of their sins. Little do men know how much religion is vilified and the ways of God spoken evil of because of the sinful lifestyles of those who profess to be followers of the Gospel. It is as if there were no force in the grace and favor of 
our God to make us love and obey Him in all things, as if religion consisted in word only and not in power. What a scandal this is because of Christ. It is no marvel. God begins with them first. A man may see and pass by dirt in his yard, but he will not allow it in his dining chamber, nor endure it in his parlor. That is, you're going you're gonna to walk past the, the, the molehill out in your yard, but if there's a pile of dirt on your dining room table, you're going to get rid of it. And friends, we're called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are going to set before Him in glory. So of course, He's going to deal with our sins. And secondly, Sib says here, because the sins of the godly are more heinous than others, they are committed against more light and against more benefits and favors. What? To make the temple of God a den of thieves, to defile their body and souls who are bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus? Is this a small matter? Their sins are idolatry for they are not only the house of God but the spouse of God isn't that wonderful man we need to be Puritans again sorry now for a spouse to be false and adulterous this is far greater than fornication because the bond is nearer so the nearer any come to God in profession the higher the aggravation of the sin and as their sin grows so must their punishment grow answerable and proportionate They that know God will most of all others must look for the most stripes if they do not do do it. Friends, the reality is Christ has borne much on the tree from the foolishness of our sin. If you were to ask me this morning what my greatest concerns are for the church today, It's not anything that comes against us. That seems to get a lot of the conversation. Well, there's some liberal out there saying something. Yeah, there's always going to be liberals out there saying something. And most often it's going to be absolute nonsense. But what concerns me for LifePoint, it's not even what comes out of you. It's what comes out of me. It's what comes out of our own hearts. It's what comes out of the church as the Spirit of God. Friends, we claim to be translated into the kingdom of God. We claim to be citizens of a heavenly kingdom. How dare our words and our actions betray that reality? It is what comes out of us that is most problematic, and that in two particular areas. Our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy, our belief and our practice, the orthodoxy, right belief, knowing the Bible, having the faith once for all delivered to the saints, understood in a theological construct that is, that is clear and that we would continue to grow in that. Knowing the Bible rightly is important. But some people think we can just stop there. And that's not true. It also has to flow over into orthopraxy, a, a right practice. You see, we can hold to the right theology with sour spirits. We, we can believe the right thing and not do the right thing. We live in a time when the most profound thinkers of our day, and this should cause us to lament, not rejoice in them, that some of the most profound thinkers of our day, Brian, you know what they're up to this morning? Jabbing somebody else for their theology in 160 characters or less and feeling like they've accomplished something for the kingdom. All that shows us is how far we have fallen. To believe that we can slander others, that we can make light of other image bearers, and that God is pleased with us. 
What, what absolute foolishness. We think that godliness, that kindness, that maturity, that love, that peace among the saints are a second tier issue. But friends, right belief and right practice always go hand in hand. And the error of the church is constantly, well, we can believe some things falsely and still wind up in right practice. I promise you it will never happen. We are not only, beloved, this morning, and I'll leave you with this. We are not only the house of God. We are the spouse of God. Let us live in holiness in light of the Spirit that has called us to redemption. For the glory of God, acting as those who are heirs with the risen Savior. Let you pray with me. Father, we come into Your presence this morning acknowledging our own foolishness. Acknowledging so often we've been lazy in our study of Your Word. We've departed Your Word. Uh, we have looked for pastures where we can be comfortable, not those where we can be challenged. We've looked for places where, Father, our affections are stirred. And we've neglected those areas where we could serve You in gladness. Father, I pray that we would grow to be a people. And this is only a reality by the power of Your Spirit. That we would live under Your Word. And that we would leave our own arrogance. And that we would not depend on, upon our own intellectual ability but that we would rest in You and Your Word. And Father, that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Father, I pray that we would be people who are keenly aware that You loved us so radically as to send Your only begotten Son. Father, we know that Your Son has bore our sins on the tree, so, so we are the most accountable among the earth. Let us live like that. Let us, let us live our lives for Your glory seeking to be wise in Your Word and foolish according to the world, seeking not to build up a kingdom for ourselves, but to serve Your kingdom and Your purposes. Father, would You use our lives for Your glory? Would You scatter us in a way, in this week even, and, and, and fill us such with a love and a joy for Your Word and what Your Son has done for us that we couldn't hold it back from those that were around, but speak truth and wisdom into the lives of others. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know You, I pray, Father, that You would convict them of their sins, show them that they have gone their own way, and turn them back to the One who is the Word made flesh. Father, I lift before You those who are unable to gather with us here this morning. Those who are traveling. We, we love them and we're thankful for them. I just ask that You would give them grace in the place that they are. I pray that as we celebrate spring break week that we wouldn't do it in foolishness and sin, but that we would do it for Your glory. Uh, this morning, I know that there are those of, uh, in our congregation who have suffered loss uh, recently. The Gilbert family, others. And I just pray that You would give them strength and compassion that Your Word would be their source of joy ultimately. Father, there are others who are making life decisions in our congregation. I'm so thankful. I pray that You would just give them wisdom and clarity and peace about the decisions they have to make. And, and, and Father, that we would rejoice with them in that, those things. And Father, I, I ask that You would continue 
to use different men and women who I know have places of influence in our uh, church in their respective ministries throughout this week, uh, that they would herald your word in a way understanding that, that it's not left to pastors, uh, but that ultimately you use the whole church for your whole glory. Might we live in light of that reality this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand to your feet. We're going to introduce a new song this morning. Uh, and I'm just going to borrow a little bit from Mark Lloyd-Jones to, to uh, introduce it to you. Uh, he said that most unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. He said the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. Question. 